Hi there, I'm Brett, and you're listening to 21st Century Vitalism, a podcast exploring how we can best stay energized, inspired, and wakeful while dealing with the uncertain times that we live in. When I contemplate working with these three qualities, I feel that it's going to be crucial to learn how to investigate our relationships. The people in our lives often have a tremendous influence over whether or not we're able to find ease within our day. Whether we're falling in and out of love, or getting our buttons pushed by a coworker, there's a lot of uncertainty that comes up when we're exchanging with another person. This is why I think it helps to have a methodology or approach to view our relationships from a place that allows us to stay grounded and present. Luckily for us, today's guest Susan Piver exists. She's a Buddhist teacher who's been practicing for 27 years and a New York Times best-selling author who's released now 10 books, with her most recent being the topic of today's episode, The Buddhist Enneagram. This combines the ancient wisdom of the East with a very mysterious mapping system of nine distinct personality types. In this conversation, we talk about how understanding these nine types can help us generate a sense of compassion and genuine appreciation for ourselves and others. So if you're feeling inspired after hearing this conversation, I really encourage you to pick up a copy of her book. I recently made my way through it and found it to be incredibly powerful. She writes in a way that's both insightful and very accessible, with a lot of genuinely humorous bits thrown in here and there. And it was funny because when I got to my personality type, it felt like she was speaking directly into my experience. For better and worse, it highlighted the gifts that I feel like I have for the world and also some of the things that I try to avoid within myself. So seeing my processes on a page that somebody else wrote was just such a humbling and a little unnerving, but in the best way possible. And with that information, I just feel that much more connected to who I am. And it really was a wonderful read. So I encourage you to explore this material a little bit more. What we talk about here is really just a doorway. I also want to encourage you to check out her online meditation community. It is called the Open Heart Project. It's at openheartproject.com. I've studied under her before with a six-week series and found her to be very beneficial to work with. She is a wonderful, wonderful teacher and has a lot of insight to offer in the world of meditation. And if you've never worked with a teacher before, she is a great doorway into that kind of relationship, which I think is the gasoline to the fire of your spiritual practice. I think it's frankly kind of crucial. And I would love to steer as many of my fine listeners over to her because I trust her with this and I think that a lot of people can benefit. So yeah, that's what we're going to be doing today, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in, listening to this conversation, sharing your attention. I know that it's a commodified resource these days. So please feel free to kick back, drink some tea, do some stretches, and just open your heart for Susan Piver. Susan, we are now live. Uh, Once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. I have been really excited for this conversation since July we had it planned. So thank you so much. 
I'm so glad to be here. I look forward to the conversation too. So I really wanted to start this off with a little bit of praise. Uh, and you know, I was thinking a lot about this and not just with what we're going to be talking about today, but all of your work in the past as well. There's something that I find very brave about the teachings that you share in that you really have a lot of confidence in bringing ancient Buddhist wisdom and infusing it with other things that weren't a part of the canon. And I just think that that is so important, you know, so with relationships, as we talked before and today about the Enneagram, I just think it's just really amazing that you're able to bridge worlds in this way. And I think it's crucial for Buddhism going into the future. So I just really wanted to start by saying that I, I think that that's really awesome that you're able Thank to do that. You. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, and I, I really appreciate that. That is my aim. But I just want to amend, I, I don't necessarily have tremendous confidence in myself, but I do have tremendous confidence in what I've been taught. And that it makes it much easier. That makes it possible, in fact, because I feel such respect for the teachings. Yeah. And I think it really does communicate. And, you know, I just want to really reiterate that I think that it's important in this kind of uh, tipping point of the world right now where a lot of these traditions which have been brewing for thousands of years are now making that transplant into a new culture to have figures such as yourself who see the value of the teachings and are able to make it really relevant and contemporary I just think is mm. the cutting edge of you know the thing like we're baking the bread fresh as um, my teacher would say. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. Um, I so appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. It makes my day. Thank yeah. you for saying those kind words. Yeah. So that brings us to today's topic. Uh, congratulations. You just got done midwifing a new book. Uh, and it's one that I have been going through and found incredibly impactful already in the way that it synergizes with my current understanding. And that is on the Buddhist Enneagram. So I know a lot of folks might have kind of an inkling of what the Enneagram is without actually maybe even knowing too much about it. So I'm just kind of curious from your experience, what the heck are we talking about when we say the Enneagram? Yeah. What are we talking about? Yeah, Enneagram, Ennea, E-N-N-E-A, is the Greek prefix for nine. So the Enneagram describes nine kinds of people, sometimes called nine personalities, but I don't think that's accurate. It's much more vast than that. Nine ways of being in the world. And each, per, each of us is one of them, not all of them. And to discover where you are in the diagram, because it's depicted as a diagram, uh, has untold benefits. Yeah. So where does this, is this a Greek thing? If that's where the name is from, like, I've never really understood. Whenever I hear about it, nobody seems to really know where it came from. Right? That is one of my favorite things about it. Yeah. It may be Greek. It may be, who knows? Nobody wow. knows where it comes from. And that, again, is one of the things I love about it most is, it seems to be a self-existing body of wisdom that no one crafted. Someone, various people discovered things about it, 
what is known about it, as far as I understand, I think there was like a desert father from a long time ago named Ramon Lull, I think his name was. And there's some sense that he taught this, but I don't know. There's nothing recorded that I know of. And then fast forward like thousands of years, uh, the Greek-Armenian mystic George Gurdjieff was the first person in recorded history, I believe most people would agree, to have taught the Enneagram. But he didn't teach it as a system of personality as we look at it today, but more as a way of understanding natural cycles. And then a guy named Oscar Ichazo, you know, in the 60s sometime, basically transmitted the Enneagram, what we consider the Enneagram, the Enneagram of personality, and he had a student named Claudio Naranjo who added uh, unspeakably valuable uh, insights to the Enneagram. And I met him once. I won't make this a long story, but it turned out he was, is a Buddhist practitioner too, like we are, and in Tibetan tradition, like we are. Mm. And there's the notion in our traditions of terma, T-E-R-M-A, which means treasure. Teachings that are sort of discovered whole in people's minds or in some cultures, in the earth somewhere. So I said to him, the Enneagram seems like a terma. Like it just, it exists. And he was like, oh, yeah, probably it is. So that's the best I got. Wow, that's all we need. <laughs> So at what point in your life did you feel like you made your first uh, introduction to it? And did you immediately realize this is something like, oh, this, this has a lot of juice to it? Mm, I did immediately realize that. And I've been studying the Enneagram for as long as I've been studying Buddhism. So that's wow. like 27 years now, a pretty long time. And when I first read a book about the Enneagram, it was called The Enneagram by Helen Palmer, which was the first... I think it was published in 92 or something like that, 95, around there. The first book to sort of penetrate mainstream consciousness to any degree. And she's great. It's a brilliant book. It's still completely fab fabulous. And my f number one recommendation to anyone that wants to learn about the Enneagram. Um, I read it and I'm like, and this happens, I see it all the time. You read about it and then you either, it either bounces off of you, you're like, whatever. Or you're like, tell me every single thing anyone has ever said about the Enneagram. Because <laughs> you start to see the world through the lens of the nine types. And that was me in that latter category. Yeah. I, I fell in love with it right away. Did you right off the bat kind of see that this could easily be symbiotic with Buddhism? Or did these areas of study kind of seem separate and later come together? I never, I never thought of them in concert. I also was a new Buddhist student at the time, just like I was a new Enneagram student. But when I got very deep into Mahayana practices and Vajrayana practices of compassion and wakefulness, my mind kept going back to what I knew about the Enneagram to help explain how you actually do those things how you have compassion for yourself, how you have compassion for others, including the people that drive you mad. The Enneagram, the Enneagram is a skillful means and it teaches you how to be awake 
in the sense that it points over and over again to who you think you are, but you aren't. Mm. Yeah, that was something that really struck me about your presentation with it. And I'm curious if this is in the traditional Enneagram teachings, but within your book, everything points to that compassion principle and using this as a means to actually bridge between self and other and kind of mm -hmm. see that as being a little bit more of a liminal thing. So was Enneagram, was there a lot of practice involved with the traditional teachings of engaging with people or was it kind of classification and then, you know, keeping people away? There was, there has been attention paid, certainly. And Helen Palmer's second book was the Enneagram in Love and Work. So she was immediately applying it there. And in the last 10 years, I would say, it's become enormously popular, particularly in the Christian community, the evangelical communities, and there, and psychological community, psychology communities for coaches and therapists have, and so that's great. And it's also become a, a meme in a sense, you know, endless Instagram posts about what each Enneagram type would order at Starbucks and so on. So it, it really can span quite a number of um, contexts. But what I hope to do with this book is acknowledge, but take it away from the parlor game mentality and also take it away from the transactional therapeutic realm about which I know nothing except that part of it involves, if you do this, you will get that. And it's true, if you do this, you will get that. And it's very valuable. But there's also a spiritual underpinning to the Enneagram that is extraordinary and goes missing, just as if you try to apply mindfulness for self-help, it will help you. But you're leaving a lot of bleep on the table <laughs> if that's what you limit it to. And I feel the same about the Enneagram. Yeah, it will help you. But you're leaving the, the real jewels on the table if you stop there. Would it be appropriate to talk about those jewels? Because I know a lot of people who might not have dedicated spiritual practice, they might hear something like that and like, well, if I'm not going to like get something from it, why would I even spend time with it? Like why, mm -hmm. what motivates somebody to really take this work on? Yeah, well, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm just trying to pick from among the many examples in my mind right now. So, okay, so back in the day when I had a job, square job, as opposed to working for myself, I was in the music business, actually, and I worked for a guy who was really, really smart. And he, he uh, gave me responsibility for a lot of projects that, no, that were very new to him and to me. And I would run into problems with those projects. It's not working the way we thought, whatever. And I would pass him in the hall and I'd say, I've run into a problem. Can we find a time to talk about it? And he would like glaze over. And then I would feel like crap, like, oh, maybe I should know how to do these things or maybe he's a jerk. I don't know, there was all this agitation there. And then I realized he was a seven on the Enneagram. And sevens pay attention to one thing in particular first. Everybody pays attention to everything, but each of the types is magnetized by something different at first. And what sevens are magnetized by is possibility. Their eyes are trained on the horizon. 
And when someone tugs on their sleeve and says, I have a problem, they have to draw the gaze to earth. They don't like that because they're seeing what could be all the time. So, okay, respect for that. I still have my problems though. So when I realized he was a seven and I just started wording it differently, I'd think about my problem and then I'd say to him, I have an idea and I would like your feedback because ideas are what's possible. And just, I wasn't trying to be manipulative, but just framing it as an idea instead of a problem and feedback instead of a solution, it just dissolved all of this interpersonal craziness that we all experience every day because we don't know how to talk to each other. We don't, we interpret what people say through the lens of our own selves. And the Enneagram, among the most powerful things that it does, is train you to see other people apart from your projections about who they are. And that is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that is really important. Yeah, the image that I just had was, and I mean, I'm sure everybody can attest to this, when you have an interpersonal ugh with somebody, like the amount of narration that can build up and actually separate you from that person at a certain point, like the narration builds up so much that you're not even responding to what they did or didn't do. You're just completely in a veil of thoughts. And this seems to be such an immediate snapping back to reality and ability to just be present with the way that they're expressing. And yeah, that's, that's powerful. It it's... really is. And the closer we are to someone, the more intimate we are with someone, the harder it is to separate them from our projections. But the more important it is to do so, because how can you love them if you're just seeing what you think they are? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. So I'm on board. <laughs> how do we? Okay, we got one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so like, how do we begin this kind of work then? Like, mm -hmm. What's like the, the entryway? If, if something like the Enneagram seems interesting, good. If it doesn't, good. Just do something else. That, that's fine. But if it seems interesting, the first place to start and the only place really to go is to try to figure out which of the nine is you. We can't really type other people because we don't really know who they are on the inside. That said, once you know the system, you get a sense of who people are, but that's none of your business really. So when I am talking to someone and I think, oh, I think, I think, there, I think there are two, I try not to say to myself, there are two and instead say, I feel the energy of two present. So I don't want to trap them. Uh, the Enneagram is not nine ghettos that we want to put people in. So a way to locate yourself is to begin with the fact that the Enneagram, the nine types are divided into three groups of three. Eight, nine, and one, one group, two, three, and four, another group, five, six, and seven, the third group by center of intelligence. And we each possess all, for, all these forms of intelligence, but for each of us, one of them is predominant. Eight, nine, and one embody the intelligence of intuition. They move through the world trusting their gut. I don't know how I knew it, I just did. Don't make me explain it. Two, three, and four, the intelligence of emotion. 
go through the world, maybe not like emoting all over the place, but sussing out what they feel about something in order to know what it is. So until you know, and this is my triad, until you know what you feel about something, not quite dimensional, don't, I can't really identify it. Very broadly speaking, five, six, and seven, the intelligence of the mind, mentation. So we all have intuitions, we all have feelings, we all have thoughts. But for each of us, according to the Enneagram, one of those takes the lead. And that is a really good place to start. And further, I realized, by the way, and it took me like two years to figure out which type I was, uh, a feeling type, because I, what I called feelings, the Enneagram, what I called intuition, the Enneagram called feelings. So I thought it was an eight for a long time. Anyway, I'm not. Uh, each type has a sort of default response with a lot of nuance. So this is too broad, but nonetheless, to challenge, to stress. So if you're in a gut person and things don't go your way, like I see it, I'm going for it, and something cuts you off, you get angry. So there's some people who respond to stress with anger. Emotional triad respond to stress by having the emotions sort of go off kilter, becoming depressed or super needy or grasping, whatever it may be. And then the mental people, five, six, and seven, when things don't go their way, the thinking speeds up. What if I did this? Well, I could do that over there and let me map this out and maybe make lists of pros and cons. It goes faster and faster. And in the Enneagram, in any case, that's called anxiety. So if you respond to stress with anxiety, paranoia, or anger, or feelings, heightened feelings, that's a place to start. Mm. But there's it's much more nuance than that, but that's a place to start. Yeah, something that really struck me uh, as I was going through, I didn't realize there were so many layers to this as well. You know, you just described, those, that's the triads, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So then there's also the like subtypes and integrations and disintegrations. And the feeling that I had on the outset was that, you know, you have your type and then that's something you can kind of exist within. But now I feel a stronger sense of like fluidness to it. It kind of seems like everything, like the boundaries are a little bit more permeable than I originally mm -hmm. anticipated. Um, mm -hmm. And especially with like the wings, which you don't get too into. But it, it, is there... Is there that a fluid nature? Am I picking up on that correctly? I don't know. Okay. But and there is a sort of fluid nature. Like the, one of the most frequently asked questions about the Enneagram was, am I always one type? Can I change type? And according to the Enneagram and according to my observation, the answer is you are only one type and you're always going to be that type. But the Enneagram diagram has lines that connect the types in various ways. So those lines indicate channels of growth, you could say, even though they're called arrows of integration and disintegration, we grow when we integrate and we grow when we disintegrate. And according to the Enneagram, you grow, you integrate in a certain way and you disintegrate with a different flavor. So just for example, eights on the intuitive triad, uh, always gonna be eights, not afraid to get angry. When things don't go their way, they disintegrate at five. That's what the Enneagram calls it. Disintegrate at five. Five is the most 
withdrawn and retracted of the type. So eights who are normally, get out of my way, I got things to do, I don't like this, I like that, just completely out there, they start to go behind a curtain. They're still just as angry and powerful, but you can't see them. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. When they integrate, when they're like, yeah, okay, I don't have to keep fighting for my territory and I feel respected and good in my life, then they integrate at two, which is on the emotional triad and is the most giving and loving, in a sense, of all the types. So eights soften it too, and they uh, tighten up at five. Twos tighten up at eight, so it works in the opposite direction. So there's a lot of complexities, and there's a journey within the Enneagram for each type, but that journey, as far as I know, does not include changing your type. Mm. Okay. So it's kind of like a borrowing of qualities, rather? An embodying of qualities. Okay. And it describes a natural evolution or devolution. Mm-hmm. And we're very likely doing this all the time, like opening and closing. And like, it's not ever really just like static, is it? Uh, nothing is. Yeah. So the, I would say yes to that. Yeah. And you mentioned the subtypes. Can I touch on that for a second? Of course, yeah. I think that's hugely important. I, I think that's the most important thing, in fact, if you're trying to discover your type. Even though it's called subtype, so it sounds less important, it's uh, the key to discovering your type is to first try to settle on a subtype. The subtypes refer to the three instinctual drives that we all share. It's different than the three intelligences. The three instinctual drives that all beings have are first for self-preservation. We're just wired to not want to be dead. Two, we have a social drive to connect with something larger than ourselves or to be part of a tribe. And we have a sexual drive, which doesn't just mean I want to have sex with everyone. It means I want to connect with a person. That's important. We have these drives. Is that one person or is that just people? We all have all three of those drives. But for each of us, it seems one of them is dominant. Yeah. Well, no, I guess I meant with um, like the sexual drive. Is that specifically mm -hmm. connecting with one person or is that kind of like I want to connect with all people? Does that make sense? uh, One person. Okay. Gotcha. In various circumstances, I'm going to jet to work. I want to be able to talk, connect with someone. I'm going on a date. I want to be able to connect yeah. with that person. Yeah. The focus of attention goes to connection. Gotcha. With who? With a person. Yep. Yep. I suppose it could be a group too, but let's say a person. So I would never have discovered that I was a four until I read about the self-preservation four, which is different than a social four and different than a sexual four. So in this sense, there are 27 types. Self-preservation one, social one, sexual one, self-preservation two, social two, and so on. So I didn't resonate with anything about four, particularly romantic and tragic and drama queens and kings. I didn't think of myself in those ways. But when I read about self-preservation four, I was like, identified. Mm. I was called out. Yeah. Um, and it, it was uncanny. 
So I wouldn't, unless I knew about self-preservation, I would have just glossed over four. Hmm. So I suggest that people discover their sub, think about their subtype first and then start to investigate type. So you think like the unfolding of discovery is like feeling out your triad first and then subtype and then you can, with those two, kind of narrow in on where you are? I think that's, yes, exactly. I, that's what I would suggest. Okay. Because fortunately or unfortunately, there are no tests. Mm. I mean, there's millions of tests, but none of them are accurate. Yeah. None of them, okay, this is the test that will tell you what your Enneagram type is. So there are other personality systems, Myers-Briggs or the Colby's. They have tests. They have instruments. They're really reliable. There's no equivalent that I've ever found for the Enneagram. So my suggestion is take all the free tests and see if some numbers, two or three numbers, don't start to come up more than others. Then look at subtype. And then take dive back in, say two and eight show up more than the other numbers, and you think you're social type, read about social eight, read about social two, and st you'll start to narrow it down from there. Yeah. It can take time, though. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, patience is good with anything. There does seem to be a, a strong sense of like self-examination, like the ability to be able to have that sense of introspection to really take inventory of how you show up to the experiences of your life. Would you say that there's like a prerequisite practice to kind of cultivate that muscle? Uh, would you say mm -hmm. mindfulness specifically? Do you think that that would mm -hmm. be something that could help people get an access to really see the subtle energies that are at play to dial in? That's a great question. Of course, I think that having a meditation practice or a contemplative practice of any kind is essential for me. It's not essential for everyone because different people, people operate differently. So yeah, being able to notice your behaviors, being able to feel what your natural choices are, like when you go into a situation, where do you choose to focus first? Extremely helpful. But there's a certain point where no matter how much you notice, the uh, utility is limited because in some sense you could say the Enneagram describes nine blind spots. Nine things, nine matrices of things you cannot see about yourself. Mm. So do you want to see? Do you want to consider? This could be me. If you don't, more power to you. If you do, this could really help. Yeah. So if somebody's half in on that idea of seeing parts of themselves, they're like, well, I'm, the curiosity is overwhelming me. And then they do start to feel a strong sense of like, oh, this is me. But what I'm hearing is kind of painful. And it, it mm. like kind of like hurts. Like, what would you say to that kind of, because it does kind of seem, I mean, based on what I've read, that each of these has kind of a neurotic quality and then it's wisdom quality. And how do we handle, you know, receiving that? You know, a lot of people yeah. don't want to hear that. Uh, completely. And how do you handle receiving it? That's, that's, that's up to you. That's up to you. So what I could say is, just as you say, there's a continuum, just as in the five Buddha families in Tibetan Buddhism that describes five afflictive emotions, 
it describes five corollary uh, wisdoms. And you don't, they're not, you don't get rid of the afflictive emotion so you can have the wisdom. The afflictive emotion and the wisdom are the same. Just looking through the wrong, wrong lens, side of the telescope or something like that. So if you're willing to examine what is painful about being you, you're also examining what is brilliant about being you. And unfortunately, they can't be separated. Or fortunately, I don't know. I hear a train. Yeah, it's kind of nice, though. Okay, good. I yeah, I like it, too. Yeah. I, my partner is a one, and <laughs> he, to this day, he's like, I don't know why anyone would want to know this, because I found out I'm a jerk, <laughs> and I'm not really interested in that. <laughs> like, you're not a jerk, except for sometimes, except but for you're not. You there's a, <laughs> except for when you are, exactly. But there's this whole other value to who you are and how you are in the world. And in the Buddhist Enneagram, I tried, I hoped, to also point out the brilliance and the gift of each type through some story uh, that indicates that these are nine forms of beauty and nine forms of pain. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it seems, you know, I know you said that like the most important thing is figuring out your own type and it's none of your business what somebody else is, but I almost kind of feel like even having that sense of like subtle energy and seeing when somebody's kind of being a jerk to you to like slow down and like kind of just recognize that there is that inherent quality. It just seems like such a compassionate, like you said, like the upaya, like the skillful means of like just bringing a sense of spaciousness to it. It just is remarkable. It is compassion for others, but it's also compassion for yourself because you can remain connected to the people who are important to you and you can navigate through difficult conversations with your sense of self intact through having compassion for the way other people do things. So can I give you a little example? Yeah. Okay, so my partner, as I said, my husband is a one. Each type, their attention is magnetized by something in particular first. His attention, the attention of ones, is magnetized by right or wrong. Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this being done correctly? Is it being done incorrectly? Nothing wrong with that. The attention of four, my type, does not go to that. It goes to meaning. What does this mean? What is this emotion called? What do you feel? What do I feel? That's really different than right and wrong. Mm -hmm. So when we get into an argument, the more I try to pull him to talk about what I see without acknowledging what he sees, the further we get from each other. But if in an argument, I can also go, okay, it's not that important to me, but let me see if I can find something about right and wrong here. So I can say, I see where it went wrong. I see where I made a mistake. I think when this started when you did that, just that's what he's looking at. That's not what I'm looking at. But when I can look with him, it's, it's, uh, it's more loving. And it reduces the agitation for both of us. Mm. And similarly, when he can say to me, 
how, what does this mean to you? Or how do you feel about this? And he has to really want to know the answer because it's going to be detailed and complex because I'm a four. Uh, then I relax. Mm. Yeah. So we can be together. Right. It definitely seems like even if one person in a dynamic has that ability to kind of cross the line to see from other, like the amount of just blame just gets immediately diminished. And is it possible? Good days. Yeah. Is it possible that somebody could maybe like harm themselves by not respecting, like say for you, that meaning is what you focus on? Is it possible that someone who knows the Enneagram engaging with someone who doesn't they're constantly extending themselves without being met with reciprocity. Is it possible to like use this as a means to like subdue our own focus? If that makes sense. I think it's a means to honor our own focus and hold it with respect rather than what I, or most of us have done most of our lives, which is somebody said, this is the wrong way to be. So let me try to be someone else. When you can rest in yourself, then it's empowering. When you're always trying to tinker with yourself, it's disempowering. It feels like, oh, there's a problem and I need to fix it, and it's called me. And yeah, I have many problems. <laughs> there are many things I want to fix about myself. But if I can do that within an environment of also respecting my bent, where my attention goes, then it's, it's more loving and towards myself. And yeah, it's interesting that you say someone goes first. And as practitioners, that's part of our vow, is to go first. You know, unless it would be dangerous or, you know. But even so, I will go first. I will soften first. I will extend first. Not in a stupid way, of course, and not reflexively, skillfully. But that's part of the warrior's path, and that's why I subtitled this book, Nine Paths of Warriorship. Yeah, I know a lot of people I talk to who aren't plugged into any of this. When I say the word warriorship, I, I can see people tense up. And I, yeah. I, I don't think the West has the same understanding of warriorship that mm -hmm. like the Buddhist system does, the Shambhala situation. Mm -hmm. So could we talk a little bit about what do you mean? Are we Are we getting swords and shields and like... What What is warriorship? Yes, our sword is a double-edged sword of compassion. It cuts on the way down. It cuts projections. And on the way up, it cuts whatever you think about what you just did. So, yeah, it's it, compassion is awesome, often depicted as a double-edged sword that cuts in both directions for good. And... Here, warriors are not warriors of aggression. The enemy of the warrior in this sense is grasping, aggression, and ignorance. So we can't uh, defeat those things by punching them in the face. So there's some something else required, and a warrior as I was taught, and you were probably taught too, the primary qualification for being a warrior is to have a broken heart so that you are willing to feel where you are, who you are, who you're with. You're, you're willing to feel, and, when, and you're willing to open 
because that's the only way we can be a benefit is to open to others in our lives skillfully, not stupidly. I, and so a warrior has a broken heart and that's the primary qualification and the primary definition is a warrior is one who is not afraid of themselves. Mm. And most of us, myself certainly, I am afraid of myself, not good enough, I don't know what, not going to work out, what have you. But when you are, develop some sense of uh, fearlessness about who you are, including all of your brilliance and all of your chaos, then you, you've stepped on the warrior's path. And this really does seem like one of those beautiful mirrors, the Enneagram, as a means to really face yourself. You know, as you said, like it's showing you the hidden aspects. So when there's nine warriors, nine numbers on the Enneagram, do each of them kind of like have different attributes that are like, how does that warriorship show up, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I gave them each a warrior name. Uh, one I've called the warrior of exertion because they never give up trying to get make things right for everyone. I call two the warrior of love because they have this heart quality and three the warrior of accomplishment because they are all accomplishing and four the warrior of poetics and so on. So I think each type has a, a gift for a certain form of warriorship that I don't know what it's going to look like because it will look like whatever they look like. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, this idea that warriorship looks so different, but it is so accessible to everybody's immediate experience. Like we all have our own access point and you know, I really bringing it back to the fact that it's not our responsibility to dictate what somebody else's warriorship is, but it's still something that's so right there, you can't even avoid it. You know, that's right. and it's all equal in that sense. Yeah, they're each extremely valuable. Yeah. Well, this is this is wonderful. So we just talked about five. I, I'm kind of curious about like what the other warriors are. To be honest, is oh, that okay, yeah? Sure. Uh, five, I call the warrior of insight. Six, the warrior of truth. Seven, the warrior of magic. Can you hear my cat? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We'll, we're leaving that in, though. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. That's very important. Yeah. <laughs> Eight, all accomplishing warriors. The warrior of power mm -hmm. is eight. And nine, the warrior of presence. Mm. So with each of those descriptions, is that is there kind of a key to like how they show up for themselves and how they examine and really face themselves? Like the warrior of magic, the way that they work with their own energy is through a sense of like magical quality. Or how did you come up with those names that fit that like in that way? I just, I came up with those names because that's how they seem to me. And to embody the warriorship essence each type has a journey to make, and just like each Buddha family has a journey to make. So for the warrior of magic, the journey, I didn't make up these words, this is the Enneagram, the passion, which is the affliction, the Enneagram uses the word passion for some reason, is uh, gluttony, and the virtue is sobriety. 
So to be the warrior of magic travels from gluttony. I just want to feel good. Whatever makes me feel good, I want more of that. To sobriety, like which we would call maybe um, equanimity. Hmm. I, that's the journey for seven, for the warrior of magic. Yeah. Yeah, the arc of transformation, as you've called it, is just something I find so fascinating as well because a lot of people they do look for like that transactional quality with a lot of things in life you know and i like that we preface this by saying like this isn't just a parlor game where you can kind of get one up on yourself but it shows you the energies that you have to actively engage with and there is like a process of unfolding and like transmuting without throwing anything away and i just think that Mm -hmm. there's something about that which is so counter to so much of Western culture that that Mm. alone could be a practice you spend your entire life going down. Seriously. I totally agree. Each type also has an idealization and an avoidance. And when I feel my avoidance or my idealization, a red flag goes up. Like, okay, I must be unhappy. Uh, So for four, the... (laughs) The avoidance is ordinariness. For three, the or, the the avoidance is failure. Hmm. For two, the avoidance is not is their own needs. So those are really three different things. All nine are different. When the avoidance is ordinariness, it, there are many people that just want to be ordinary. I want an ordinary life. I want a partner. I want a job. I want whatever. Kitty, you're okay. <laughs> You're okay. I see you. Um, so when I start, uh, this isn't special enough for me, then I'm, okay, take a pause. And the idealization is, of fours is I am special. Oh, <laughs> the middle way between <laughs> I'm special and this isn't special. That's such a narrow band I... you have to be in. <laughs> Oh, my God. For each of the types. So I am special, so special that no one will ever know me. Wow. Therefore, I am bereft. Mm. So for that's really different than, say, eight. The idealization is I am strong. And the avoidance is weakness, mm. appearing weak. So our previous president was... That he literally would burn our country up to not appear weak. Yeah. I feel like most people, most systems, they like find that idealization. They want to just hang out there. And it's really interesting that yeah. this system just completely cuts through that and says like, that's actually not where you are or what you are. It's, it's an obstacle. Yeah. Whoa. It's an obstacle. Yeah, that's that's radical. That's a really radical way to look mm-hmm. at things. And I could see, I know I've heard people like the dark night of the soul where like you make the spiritual pilgrimage and you realize that the things that once made you really fulfilled were like really transient. And I could see like mm-hmm. really connecting to the heart of that, like, oh, being strong isn't going to actually be the thing that brings me fulfillment. Like I could see there being kind of like a dropping of the heart and just kind of like, what what's happening <laughs> that's a scary that yeah now what yeah it's groundless yeah and the enneagram 
as as do the most profound spiritual traditions, constantly pushes you off the ledge. Yeah. And encourages groundlessness. Yeah. That was something I was, you know, in, in your integration of this with Buddhist wisdom, you know, when I first met you, it was over the Heart Sutra. You know, we spent six mm. weeks talking about that and emptiness. And I'm kind of curious on how emptiness and this kind of coexist. Is it, mm-hmm. I almost don't even want to like say any more than that because I know I'm just going to keep muddying it up. But like, how can you reconcile like the nature of emptiness and also mm-hmm. these things which seem very like, oh, these seem very real when you plug into that energy, you know, how do those, how do those coexist? Well, the answer is, I have no idea. (laughs) I knew it. I don't know. Yeah. But emptiness doesn't mean null. Doesn't mean void. It doesn't mean absent. There is, uh, you know, I don't know is really the answer, but I, I think about this a lot how can we use the Enneagram not to reify our ordinary selves, but to go somewhere beyond that, where recognition of emptiness or prajna is to be found. So first, I think it's very useful to soften toward yourself. We cannot, can't use our ego, quote unquote, to defeat our ego by saying shut up a lot to ourselves. So now what? I, And also, in our tradition, emptiness is never separated from luminosity. All phenomena are empty and luminous. And in some ways, I think about the energies of the Enneagram types as forms of luminosity. Empty and luminous. I'm not really a four. There's no such thing as a four. But there's a luminous quality for, of my presence, your presence, everyone's presence, that shouldn't be ignored, I don't think. And again, as we were trained, the, the polarities are inseparable. Samsara is not inseparable. Samsara and nirvana are inseparable. So solidification of ego and emptiness are inseparable. Hmm. I can't start at one end of the spectrum. I can't start with egolessness. I have to start with my ego, quote unquote, whatever that is. And then I can be on a journey. But if I just have some idea, oh, well, I should, I don't have a self, so I should shut up. Well, let me start by denying myself. That's not fruitful. Yeah. So what else could you, what else you got is sort of my question to myself. Yeah. Yeah, So I think to, you know, kind of put a bow on this and tying it back into your own experience, I'm kind of curious what your ultimate intention and hope is when people meet this material. Like what is like the ultimate takeaway that you really want people to have when they close the, the book after reading it and they're just, they've been washed over with all this information and this insight, like what, what do you hope people take away? Well, the real answer is it's none of my business. I have no idea what people will take away from it. But what I take away from it is 
a more expansive sense of who I am and more gentleness toward myself. And I just find those things to be very valuable. I I'm sure you do too. Yeah, I love that. I also love it, like, when I ask you, you specifically as a teacher, I've heard you say this a lot where you're just like, it's none of my business. I adore that. I think that that is such a healthy thing that I am also trying to learn. The, the. Well, yeah, I mean, we've all had a lot of teachers who say this is what you should do, and sometimes that's really valuable. Yeah. And sometimes not so much. Yeah. So. Well, it's very encouraging. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Thank you. Well, where can people find this work? Where can people plug in with you and explore their own uh, self in this way? Yeah, thank you. Well, the Buddhist Enneagram is on, as of literally yesterday, mm. available on all online booksellers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, book source, and so on. And uh, it's in bo some bookstores. And if people want to buy books from their local bookstore, that's great. They can re It's either there or they can request it as a special order. Um, and my website is openheartproject.com. And there are some, there's some sense of, well, this is where you can find it okay. there too. Is there any one of those channels that d benefits you more directly than others? Like if there's like, a, if there's one that we could like avoid <laughs> or like if there's one that you get less from. Yeah. Uh, Amazon is the most beneficial, okay. even though it's also the most reviled, yeah. but it's the, it's the behemoth. Yeah. And if you buy it from Amazon or review it on Amazon, it pushes the Amazon algorithm to tell more people about your book. Okay. And that's helpful and weird. Yeah. It's a weird dichotomy that we live in with that. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to support them, uh -huh. but I want to support the author. Dang it. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's uh, it's amazing. How... Yeah. They're smart. So do you have mm -hmm. any events coming up? Is there anything that you want to plug beyond uh, just the book? Uh, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, I'm happy you mentioned the Heart Sutra because I'm teaching a retreat on the Heart Sutra in Austin, Texas in November and in person. Very excited about that. And the Open Heart Project Sangha, the online community, is, you know, my heart. And it's a really wonderful group of people who practice together and contemplate things like the Heart Sutra and the Enneagram with the eye of making their own way. As a teacher, the way I was trained was don't teach anyone anything. Help them to discover something. And that is my guiding principle as a teacher and a writer and so on. And the Open Heart Project Sangha is created on that foundation. It will help you to discover something yourself. That has opened my heart hearing that. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Susan, thank you so much. This was so clarifying as I'm going through your book. So this was a treat. I'm really excited for... Thank you, too. Yeah, I'm just really excited for people who stumble across this to discover this work and to also support you and support themselves by undertaking this project. So... Thank yeah. you. Thank you for reading the book. It, you, it means so much. And thank you for the conversation. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it, and your questions are just right mm -hmm. 
as far as I can tell, for conveying the essence of this material. So I respect for that. Thank, Thank you, you for saying that. We'll see you next time. All right, friends, that was the episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. I and I'm sure Susan both appreciate it very much. Again, I know how hard it is to muster an hour of time and to focus it on one thing, so I do not take your attention lately. So again, thank you so much. That was Susan Piver. If you want to keep in touch with her, head on over to openheartproject.com and maybe consider picking up a copy of the Buddhist Enneagram. It's wherever books are sold, but I hear that Amazon is the best place to get it, which I think she just said. So yeah, that's it for today's episode, y'all. I'm looking forward to a packed fall. Got a lot of stuff planned for the show, so we will see you when we see you.